and it also sounds like you're putting in tremendously more effort every week or month to be able to construct a good um, a good slate of foods for your mm-hmm. family than people who aren't on food assistance. Yeah, I mean, they, for them it's a one-stop shop, and for you it's it's trying to budget what mm-hmm. you have in cash, what you have in in SNAP benefits, and what yeah. the food bank is, and that's you know yeah. that's at least two different trips. Yeah, you're going to buy groceries. So it's three actually every month if we go okay. full a full blow. There's also a USDA program. Okay. Um, that is a bo- one box a month of stuff, and you can get really really lucky, or you can get really well punished basically. Um, right, yeah, what are those, I, I've yeah. seen, you sent me a picture one time of one of those USDA boxes, but, yeah, um, what is, the, can you even say in general what one of those might contain, or does it vary too much? Um, I can, in general, I can tell you what it contains. It contains a source of protein and veggies, okay. or fruit. So there is a huge spectrum there. You can get catfish as a protein. Uh, a rotisserie chicken is what we had once as a protein. Or uh, some decent ground ham, actually, locally sourced. Uh, ground beef, sorry, excuse me. Some ground beef locally sourced. That's really nice. Or um, you can get 10 cans of spinach and black-eyed peas. And let me tell you from in my experience, there's only so many ways you can make spinach and black eyed peas together. <laughs> I, I can't think of I can't think of any ways that I would want to mix this. <laughs> well, too bad you don't get a choice because you're too poor to afford anything else. on the breadline. I'm Matthew Hodges. On this, the second course of our look at food assistance in the U.S., Anna, Mark, and I discuss how the system tries to dehumanize folks who rely on public assistance for food. I talk to food journalist and activist Leah Douglas about technology changes that put farmers markets and those who rely on them at greater risk. And the team talks about why simply giving families money instead of prescribing what they get to eat results in better and more humane outcomes. Episode 3, Part 2, Bon Appetit. So let's get back to the broader issue then, because we we had this little fun aside about individualized responsibility, but what we don't talk about, what people who are opposed to food stamps, the, the people who complain about welfare, complain about they're not thinking about the constraints on individual choice, right? They, they're doing this, uh, the, the John Rawls veil of ignorance where every single person has exactly the same choices 
about what kind of food that they're going to feed their family. But and and this was a thing that I looked for in preparation for this episode. How many people on SNAP benefits also live in a food desert? You know, if you no, wanted absolutely. to, yeah, if you wanted to uh, put any kind of re- restraints on what you can use SNAP benefits for, it seems like you also need to look at do they have access to produce? You know, is it possible even to say like, okay, you can't buy pizza rolls, you can buy carrots and tomatoes without even knowing if they have access to carrots and tomatoes? Right. Yeah. It was, it was interesting at the point when my husband and I were on assistance, we were living in a neighborhood that was definitely underserved as far as good groceries went. There was one grocery store nearby and it was expensive and not very well stocked and contrast that with where we live now where there's plenty of grocery stores and plenty of produce stores and things are very cheap and very healthy and there are still a lot of people who are using EBTs to pay and they're getting much healthier groceries because they just have access to them. Yeah, so Leah Douglas, thank you so much for being on the breadline with us. Will you introduce yourself to the audience, say what it is you do? Sure. I'm a, I'm a reporter. I'm a staff writer and editor with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, where I cover the agriculture industry with a focus on corporate power and control. Well, and that's so what we're going to be talking about today feeds directly into your work um i i want to start off i guess just by uh talking about farmers markets and snap benefits generally Um, Mm -hmm. looked up a couple of statistics it looks like uh farmers markets expenditures in 2017 off of snap benefits were about 23 million dollars which is a 35% 35% increase from 2012, which is, that's great, uh, over over a third. Um, but that's out of something like $70 billion that we spend on, on SNAP benefits. Uh, do you have a sense of why the trajectory that, there, that there's so much more expenditure than there was five years ago, but also why is it still such a small slice of that pie? Sure, so SNAP, uh, processing programs at farmers markets are relatively new, so uh, was greatly accelerated by the the EBT card in the late '90s, um, which allows uh, brought SNAP transactions sort of into the credit card era. And additionally, there's been a wave in the last sort of five years or so of having uh, incentive programs at farmers markets, which basically. If you are using SNAP at the market to shop, then some markets will give you twice as much for your dollar or provide other sorts of bonus programs to SNAP users. And so that brings down the cost of the produce at the market significantly, which makes it generally more accessible to folks on a fixed income. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing those programs, I think, are one of the reasons why we're seeing more use of SNAP at markets and publicizing of those programs. Mm And the, the, the incentive programs that you named, that's not just through individual farmers, but there are community organizations also that'll, that'll do things like matching funds. Is that right? Yes. So there's a variety of ways that those are funded. The Farm Bill provides some federal funding for 
programs that are using incentive programs at markets and some cities fund their own incentive programs. So there's a variety of ways that that those are funded. So then why uh, is is it a matter of advertising these things? I, I doubt it's just that. But why is it still such a small portion of the overall SNAP expenditure that's going toward these uh, local food programs, toward farmers markets specifically? I think it has to do with uh, access points for the markets as much as it does awareness. You know, markets are... Uh, farmers markets are still reaching many areas of the country with the highest levels of food insecurity, and which we'll talk about in a, in a bit when we talk about the issue of, of disrupting those purchases and how they're done. But some of the newest markets are, are not, and actually in areas where there's higher SNAP participation, but there just hasn't been the penetration of a farmer's market yet, or the community hasn't been able to fund SNAP processing at their market yet. So there are a lot of communities that are lower access that are only just seeing the arrival of SNAP processing at farmer's markets for the first time. So very similar to, uh, I mean, there there has been a sense that farmer's markets or access to good, wholesome food, uh, you see where like Whole Foods stores move in, things like that, um, tend to be very gentrified that they're serving populations that already have the money to be able to, well, for instance, be able to walk around a farmer's market on a Saturday morning or something like that. Um, you, you think that this is sort of an extension of that, that, uh, it starts off with maybe people at the higher end of the income spectrum and then eventually trickles down as that becomes profitable. Sure. I mean, I think the way farmers markets were originally conceptualized in many places, not all places, but many was sort of more from a local food, meet your farmer angle than a food access and lowering the price of high quality food angle. So I think initially we saw higher, highest penetration of farmers market in urban areas, particularly higher income urban areas. And those areas certainly have SNAP users, but not at the same penetration as they would a lower income or, or rural area. So yes. I think we're sort of initially saw that wave of folks bringing farmers markets into areas that, you know, you have a phenomenon where, you know, the, a city like New York or DC will have dozens of markets for, you know, per capita. And then you'll go out to an area where there's more farms even, and there's no farmers market for miles. So, um, so I think there has been, there was initially that trend. And I think one of the reasons why these incentive programs are funded in the farm bill and there's been a lot of energy around them is because it allows a new, allows food access and lowering the price of those products to become sort of a core value of the farmer's markets. Yeah. Well, as far as, and this isn't necessarily in the farm bill, this is some, uh, this is some other activity that the Department of Agriculture has been involved with lately. I was hoping you could speak some about this this app, the Mobile Market Plus app, and what is happening with that. Sure. So in early July, I reported a story with another reporter, Jane Black, in the Washington Post that discussed this, the looming shutdown and sudden announcement of the shutdown of a payment processing company called Novodia, which is based in Texas. And Novodia is a company that, um, by some estimates, processes about 40% of all SNAP transactions at farmers markets. So they do the payment processing when, you know, you swipe a SNAP, an EBT card. And they announced that they were uh, planning to shut down the um, activities of their sort of 
trademark software program, which is called Mobile Market Plus, which is a piece of software that farmers markets can download onto an Apple product. So an iPad, an iPhone, a tablet, and be able to process EVT transactions um, on that piece of technology. So, so, so you, other, don't actually, yeah. you don't actually have to have one of those um, like point of sale uh, card scanners. You get your little Squarespace dongle or something like that, something that can, can read it directly into whatever device you're already using. It's the go-between for the farmer and however the money gets into their account and also what, what gets processed through the SNAP, through the EBT system. Yes, yeah, exactly. So in early July, Novodia announced that they were planning to shut down, which uh, would have left about 1,700 farmers markets without a way to process SNAP, um, which was pretty dire news to you know the hundreds of farmers market managers and volunteers and thousands of customers who rely on that piece of software in order to do their weekly shopping. And it would also compromise those incentive programs that we talked about that are, are helping markets provide, you know, double the money for SNAP participants and so on, because those, of course, also rely on an EBT processing system. Right. And and it, apparently the, the ag department has made a new contract with this different company, um, Financial Transaction Management, uh, which actually is a pretty good name for a company, I guess. If that's what you do, but apparently they don't support this same kind of, they don't, they don't support mobile transactions at all. So you're talking about suddenly a whole bunch of extra physical in infrastructure, the actual hardware for processing cards, um, rather than letting people do it off of their, off of their phones or their, or their tablets, right? Sure. Yeah. So, so to take a step back, the decision by Novodia or the announcement by Novodia that they were planning to shut down dovetailed with the rebidding of the USDA contract that distributes free EBT processing equipment to farmers markets. So many farmers markets were facing an issue that, you know, a piece of equipment to process EBT would maybe run them a thousand dollars in labor costs and equipment costs. And a lot of markets couldn't get that that was a major hurdle for a lot of markets. And so in 2012, USDA introduced a program to uh, to give out free EBT processing equipment to farmers markets and to farmers who are directly selling to SNAP participants. So it's a program that has been operational for a few years and about 2,500 markets have received equipment so far. And in, in this year, uh, USDA was set to rebid the contract for that program for distributing the equipment and previously, it had been managed by the Farmers Market Coalition, which is a national farmers market advocacy group. And the rebidding process led to USDA choosing a new contractor, financial transaction management. And the way that it relates to the other conversation about Novodia was that financial, uh, the Farmers Market Coalition, excuse me, had chosen Novodia as their primary processor. So the Farmers Market Coalition was distributing the equipment and Novodia was conducting the processing financial transaction management chose to go with a different payment processor. So Novodia cited that decision by USDA to change the contract as, quote, the tipping point for their decision to shut down. So are there any plans then on the part of financial transaction management to fill this gap that's being left by Novodia leaving the market? Yes. So financial transaction management is required by its contract with USDA to be providing an alternative online portal for farmers markets to apply for equipment and to provide that equipment 
and that portal is live. They're so far complying with the timeline set out by USDA, um, and it's sort of uh, TBD whether their portal will have the same popularity that NovoDS software has had. And there's a bit of time uh, to sort of figure out this transition because the state of New York announced soon after um, the article came out that they would be funding the Mobile Market Plus operations through the end of the farmer's market season this year. So that buys everyone a little bit of time to figure out how to transition to a new piece of software that will be introduced by financial transaction man- management. Right, yeah, because there's nothing that farmers like more than having to completely upend the way that their customers pay for their goods uh, right <laughs> as harvest season <laughs> is coming up. Um, yeah, so that was the root of a lot of the panic was, sure. you know, not only is it a major transition, but it's July, which is absolutely the peak of the season, and no one has two minutes to rub together, let alone time to figure out this major transition. So, you know, through the end of the season now, there will be sort of a stopgap solution, and then it's sort of yet to be determined what will happen next. And that covers farmers markets, not just in New York, but uh, anybody who was, who was using uh, the Novadia system or? Yes. Yeah. Anyone who's using the mobile market plus app is now covered through the end of the season. Okay. Well, we, we, we caught a break there, I guess. Thank you. Uh, who was that? State of New York? Yep. Governor Cuomo. Ah, man, I would hate for, (laughs) I would hate for our show to ever acknowledge that Andrew Cuomo did something good. (laughs) (laughs) Can't deny it. (laughs) Leah, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Breadline, uh, bringing some perspective to this issue. We're going to be following this very closely as we look at what's going on with the Farm Bill, and I hope that you'll be able to come back and talk to us about how things have, have shaken out. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to. Cool. Uh, where can folks find you online if they want to follow your work? You can find FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network, at thefern.org. And you can find me on Twitter at Leah J. Douglas. Perfect. Thank you so much. So I've seen some proposals to amend the way the SNAP program works, and it's not what uh, conservatives are, are pushing for right now. I mean, for instance, the Trump preferred budget for SNAP is to cut the program by something like it's like 25 billion dollars over 10 years or something replace ebt cards with a box of mark you talked about this on a previous episode uh replace your your ability to go to your whatever your local grocery store is and buy whatever food you think your family needs with this kind of predetermined box of like shelf stable stuff um, so, you know, peanut butter and, uh, it powdered it milk. Yeah. Right. It, it certainly doesn't include any dry kind of fresh cereal. Produce. Yeah. It, dry cereal, all of these things. Um, the Brookings institution tracked a pilot program for rather than trying to limit what people could buy with their snap card, with their EBT was rather to incentivize people to eat more healthy. And what they did was they uh, they offered a 30 cents back on the dollar that you spent buying fresh produce and, uh, you know, any, any other kind of like wholesome food. And they found that families that were offered this incentive 
immediately started buying a lot more produce for their family. People were able to, you know, actually cook with vegetables for their family instead of getting penalized, which is the thing that that's the thing that the Trump administration wants to do right now. Um, Absolutely. If you, if, if you make this if you make it easier for people. If you make it uh, – another thing that they found was just by increasing the average uh, family's EBT payment, which is only – for one family per month, it's something like 120 bucks, uh, which isn't a ton. If, if, you, if that's a family for $120 does not go that far to feed four yeah, people. Yeah, 30, 30 bucks a week of groceries is if you're really – if you don't eat a lot and you shop really smart, can feed like one person. Yeah. Like that was like when I lived alone, like 20 to 30 bucks with my grocery bill every week. I didn't eat a lot. And I can't imagine trying to feed a family of four on that. Yeah. I was going to say, even that, you're not living high on the hog. No, absolutely As a not. single person. No, no, I wasn't. I was, I mean, I was lucky that I was vegetarian at the time because protein <laughs> right, right. skyrocketed my grocery bill. And let's talk about disempowering. It's like, oh, you need assistance for one of your basic needs. Uh, we're just going to basically give you a box of MREs. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. There's, yeah. Uh, there's what, no like, consideration for people who might have food allergies. You know, you're giving families a jar of peanut butter. What if one of the kids is allergic right. to peanuts? You're putting a weapon in their home. <laughs> and if the argument is that these people are spending their food assistance on stuff like, you know, pizza rolls or whatever else and your solution is to basically give them the same nutritionally bereft food like what sense does that make there's definitely been some a lot of writing done on why people go for things like soda and packaged foods and it is a cultural thing but it's also across i mean as we see it's across people who get assistance people who don't it's a lot of calories for cheap and easy. Absolutely. And that's especially if you can't afford a lot of food, that's important. Well, Anna, I'm really glad that you brought that up because uh in my research for this episode, I also found this sort of meta-analysis from The Atlantic that looks at a whole bunch of different studies on the benefits of just giving poor people cash. And, the, you know, the I, I think the uh, conservative, the Republican argument against doing that is, oh, they're just going to spend it all on booze. They're going to spend it all on uh, on tobacco or whatever. It turns out that's not true at all. Uh, the spending on those things did not go up when you just gave people just straight up cash. They're the nutritional metrics for their children improved at least as much if not more than if you were just giving people food because it frees them up to be able to pay a little bit more rent they can it, they can fix their car they can uh pay yeah, down some car, debt you can drive to a better grocery store yeah, exactly right exactly right and if we're if we're just if we just provide people uh, social safety net in the form of cash instead of some kind of means tested nonsense like you can buy these things off of this list but not these other things it turns out their kids are fed 
at least as well, if not better, than if we were just, like, making a box of food for them. Yeah, if you can let people decide and choose what their priorities are as far as their finances, their lives are going to improve because they can improve things across the board. 100%, yeah. Imagine that. People want to actually meet their basic needs for the most part. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I, it's it puts the lie, I mean, when you actually look at the data, it puts the lie to this, uh, this bootstrappy Republican, like, yeah. libertarian thing about how, like, you know, people, people do better if they don't have, you know, if they're not, if they're not sucking on the government tit, if they're not, you know, reliant on government to provide things, it turns out most people, they want to work. They want to provide for their families as best as possible. Yeah. If we can provide the the barest minimum of, you know, a, 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 a basement level of here, you can at least, like, get your kids to school without them having empty stomachs. It turns out everybody floats. The It floats everybody's boat when you do that. And that concludes part two of our exploration of food assistance. And we'll be serving up the third course soon. Our special thanks again to our friend Theo Kretschmar Schuldorf, whose voice you heard at the top of the episode, as well as to Leah Douglas for everything she added to this discussion. We are so glad we made her acquaintance and can't wait to bring her on the show again. Your hosts on this episode were Anna Marco, who you can follow on Twitter and Instagram at VerySmallAnna. Mark Wayne, who you can follow on Twitter at Jiu-Jitsu Farmer for all the good it'll do you. And me, Matthew Hodges, I'm on Twitter at MattTheGweight, and I also produce the show. Our music is composed by the excellent Jane Stewart, whose other work you can find on Twitter at InscrutableJane. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at TheBreadlinePod, and please consider helping us fund our hosting and production at Patreon.com slash TheBreadline. Huge thanks to our new patrons, Lindsay, Nicole, Preston, Alexis, and Holloway Tape. We'll see you again soon. Stay hungry.